Hola, mi gente. Today we're going to talk about Brazil. Brazil as a country has always had this ambiguous relationship with the rest of Latin America because I come also from working in the Southern Cone. Brazil is part of Mercosur, so I've always really thought of Brazil as a neighbor that is very much like the rest of Latin America, even though politically, economically, socially, racially, culturally, one could say that there are important differentiations that are worth considering. For me, Brazil has been a soccer rival from the very beginning. And so uh, now that uh, my family uh, also has uh, Brazilian representatives, it's always interesting uh, during World Cup, who do you root for? Uh, my nephew is half Brazilian, half Argentine. Um, and at one point, we thought it'd be funny just to send him a Colombian jersey just to confuse him because he took it really personal because to him, he's just as Brazilian as he is Argentine and he speaks Portuguese or Portuño. But it's really funny because at the end of the day, it's important to think about also the impact that Brazil has had on the greater Latin American popular culture, um, but also its story is one worth considering because there is this myth of racial democracy of Brazil that has been quite popular for some time, but I want to unpack it a little bit more. Also, one of my favorite memories from working at the United Nations was when I met its current president. Lula actually was president prior to being re-elected uh, as of late in 2023. But when he was president, had just become president in Brazil, he came to the United Nations to the General Assembly. And I was working bilateral meetings at that time. And what that is, is that I basically helped facilitate when two different countries were meeting to discuss whether it be trade agreements or political alliances. And so basically, I'm just a glorified uh, event planner, if you will. But the president had requested coffee. And imagine, if the president requests coffee, it doesn't matter what department you work for, you're going to try to make it happen. And we had called downstairs to catering and we said that the president of Brazil needed coffee. And my friend who was Brazilian, she was like even more pressed to get this coffee. And in an instant, the door opens. So the elevator door opens and a friend of ours is bringing this tray of coffee. And so I jumped and took the coffee from his hand and we're like, wow, this is great. We got it. And we gave him the coffee. What we didn't know that the coffee that he was bringing up was actually for the security guard. So he had just gotten it from the coffee machine, the vending machine. So it was very watery, but we thought it was the coffee the president was sent from catering services. So he didn't drink it. And that's what I always remember his face like, blah. But we were under the impression this was the good coffee. In no way did we think that it was the one for the security, which was just the coffee vending machine. And so as we're picking up the coffee, which he just, you know, barely tasted, my friend goes, that's what I love about our president. He's so humble. 
And then, you know, that was it. That's my Lula story. But what I do remember, it was like, it doesn't matter. Good coffee is good coffee and bad coffee is bad coffee. But um, he definitely tried to shave face. But my thing is like, dude, bring your own coffee. But it was one of my favorite memories only because today I'm talking about him and he's president again, which is not an uncommon story um, in Latin America. But I think it's important for us to think about the the role of race in Brazil. Um, we know that race is socially constructed. And that's why if you read some of Jeffrey Fish's work, um, and he talks about just the different categories. Now, here in the United States, for example, we have a very, you know, Manichaean way of thinking about racial identity. There's black and there's white, right? Unfortunately, brown and black is just a sea of other. But if we think about it in terms of just the most superficial way to discriminate, well, it's uh, the color of one's skin, right? But in Brazil, those hierarchies and those systems uh, uh, of racial categories are, are, are greater than ours. I mean, there's uh, pretinha, parda, a whole bunch of different ways in which people categorize, which is very different here. We had the history of the one-drop rule, and which was really funny because my nephew, he, it was just Martin Luther King Day. And so in his school, which he goes to school in Florida, they were going over black history and Martin Luther King and he came home and his mother, who is of darker skin, um, he was like, Martin Luther King, he saved you, mom. And then she started laughing. She's like, there were a couple of more steps that happened. But yeah, I get where the story is connecting. But it was interesting because he didn't see himself as black right in the same way but let's talk a little bit about this history in the context of brazil then i want to talk about two of brazil's biggest thinkers and, and scholars um freddy who influenced greatly my pedagogic style of teaching my philosophy and then augusto boa who influenced a lot of my own work as an undergraduate when i first went to brazil to study his work and who has played the role also in the way that I engage around community organizing and that skill that I was able to leverage came from his work in forum theater. So I definitely want to review that with you today. But Brazil um, has a colonial history that looks a little bit different than the rest of Latin America because unlike, let's say, Argentina, Colombia, where liberation came from war, right? in theory, liberation, but it became independent through these wars versus in Brazil, it wasn't a war, right? I don't know if it was just a geography issue, right? It's so far away from its colonial center, which was Portugal, but it also became the final destination of more than one third of all the enslaved people that came from Africa to the Americas. There was a constant flow of Africans in the colonial period, and this created a black majority in Brazil by the early 1600s. This is also part of the greater Latin American story. I remember that when former president um, Menon in Argentina was asked about black people in Argentina, his response was like, that's not an Argentina problem. That's a problem of Brazil, right? 
And so there was a scarcity of white women and a lack of state-supported racial discrimination. And so this allowed also for a lot more racial mixing of the population, if you will. And so mulattoes became a substantial portion of the population by the late colonial period and was later transformed in the main national figure, right? The mulatto becomes the symbol of Brazil. But mulatto looks very different in Brazil, this category, than let's say the rest of the world. I always think about uh, Wilfredo Lam, the painter from Brazil, his work, and he has an image or a painting of a mulatta woman. Racially, in terms of phenotypical features, I would not align that symbol with the painting, right? The symbol of the mulatto in Brazil, because again, that history, that racial story is different, right? And so what appears to be, you know, the embodiment of a, a population that had a significant African, you know, descendancy, then it's important also to somehow represent that right which is a little different let's say if we think about it in the context of argentina where you could hear tango which is an african word but you won't necessarily see the legacy of the african diaspora in argentina because it is not something that the argentine state wants to represent to the rest of the world which is different than in the case of brazil because the complexity of race relations in Brazil, it's where mulattoes seldom think of themselves actually as black. And census has an array of colors, blanco, negro, pardo, mulatto. So again, other in the United States is the biggest uh, racial category that is continuing to grow in terms of Latin American and Caribbean populations here because again, we don't neatly fit in a box, right? I'm not necessarily sure if having a whole bunch of different boxes actually leads to a racial democracy, but there is more at least representation or acknowledgement of racial diversity. And mulattos become, as I mentioned, a substantial portion of the population. And so at the turn of the 19th century, Brazil's African heritage obsessed intellectuals, they postulated immigration to whiten the country. Again, Argentina had a similar project. It's a means, again, to unblacken, and I say this in quotes, the population. And so in the 1930s, you have Gilberto Freire, and he talks about Brazil's African heritage, which made the country a unique one and produced a lusotropical civilization with a racial democracy in which Blacks, white Indians, and mulattoes mixed and mingled harmoniously. The notion of racial democracy then became encrusted in Brazil's national imaginary, their psyche. And so the lack of state laws supporting racial segregation and Gilberto Freire's myth of racial democracy helped to reinforce the notion that racism was not existent in Brazil. However, statistics show that blacks have lower standards of living. Half of the black population lives in poverty. 30% are illiterate. Blacks earn two and one half times less than whites. So structurally, right, this democracy is really challenged by the reality of what you see around in Brazil. I mean, the favelas, it is not, you know, coincidental that in these shanty towns, people look and sound a particular way, right? And so um, if you saw City of God, which shows um, in Bahia, right? 
the structural violence in Brazil because it has these huge gaps of inequality that is racialized. Now you have millions of European immigrants in Brazil, so Italians, Germans, Polish, Russian, and they helped to populate the southern countryside and the southern eastern cities in the 19th century. You also have a significant Asian population. So after Tokyo, Japan, Sao Paulo has the biggest Japanese population in a city, right? And that's in Brazil. But also you have a lot of Chinese immigrants, Koreans, and they began to arrive in 1908 to work on the plantations of Sao Paulo in the south. Sao Paulo in the Japanese neighborhood, Liberade, you're able to see, again, how immigrant enclaves also form in Brazil and um, are maintained by communities that still identify with the diaspora. Think about it here in New York City, how many Dominicans live in Washington Heights, but they were not born in Dominican Republic, but this place becomes almost like a nexus. I feel like that about the Lower East Side, but you have enclaves like that in places throughout Latin America, in this case, um, in Sao Paulo, Liberade, but um, in Barranquilla, in Colombia, I'm from San Felipe, and that's also a, a significant African population, descendants of Africans, so Afro-Colombians. So again, um, you see these similar patterns of settlement, uh, of displacement, of Black diasporas, but also the Indians, they now mostly live in reservations, and for centuries, the populations have decreased steadily around um, the Amazon. But during the colonial period, Portuguese imposed Catholicism on Indians and Africans, and then that consolidated the empire. So Catholicism then becomes the official state religion, but the constitution in 1824 guaranteed religious freedom. So despite limited political power, the church had enormous cultural influence in the 19th century. And so in terms of religion, Brazil has traditional Catholic values that permeated the culture. Even today, Brazil is the largest Catholic country in the world. So you have Indian, African, and European religions that mixed, and there is a survival of African religious sites and the development of several cults within African and indigenous roots. And so African slaves were forced to accept Catholicism, but continued to worship their God secretly. I mean, again, individuals are not passive recipients of oppression, right? People resist, people endure. Um, and so you have syncretic religions, um, so Candomblé in Bahia, and Ubanda or Macumba in Rio de Janeiro, Yoruba and Bantu groups. In the Candomblé and Umbanda, practitioners worship the Orishas, and they coexist with traditional Catholicism. And so Candomblé ceremonies, if you've ever seen Black Orpheus, for example, that film, they take place in a terreiro de Candomblé, and they are presided by a spiritual leader, a Baba Lorisha in Santeria. You have like a Baba Lao or Yalorisha, a female. The basic ceremony derives from the Nago, which is actually from Nigeria. And so uh, you see like Oshala, which is Jesus, or Shango, the god of thunder and storms. And these are very much connected also to the geography of the place, right? Um, one of the things I remember getting to Bahia was seeing on the water the Orisha, 
that protect the city. But the last two decades has seen the growth of a new religious trend, and you see this throughout Latin America because of its relationship with the gospel of prosperity. It is not coincidental that, you know, the the people that are converting to the Pentecostal religion or evangelicals tend to be the poor, right? Because the conversion offers them an opportunity where God prospers you and not prospers you, you know, spiritually, but also monetarily. So if we're going back to like the Protestant ethic or we're going to, you know, the idea of a charismatic leader in these places, you have leaders emerge that basically are selling hope, right? So if you convert, right, God is going to take you through this burden, but you, at the end of it, this trial and tribulation, you will get X, Y, Z. And usually that comes in the form of a job or a house or opportunity. And I speak from a place of understanding also the psychology to this as my family converted. And then, you know, they went into a more isolated sect of the evangelical church, but these movements emerge and flourish in shanty towns, so in the favelas. And this has a lot to do with a lot of the class issues, right? There's a huge disparity between the rich and the poor in Brazil. 30% of the population live in abject poverty, making less than $100 a month. Brazil is a rich country full of poor people. That is um, actually written by Aiken, the once and future country. And so the social question has been a problem since the early colonial period in Brazil. It was a hierarchical society in which social mobility was extremely difficult. So in the rural setting, because remember also Brazil is a huge country with a lot of different um, geographies. So you have the Amazon, you have also Iguazu, right? That border between um, Brazil, Argentina, uh, but why you have also, you know, more tourist uh, places ideal. But then you also have Bahia, Sao Paulo is a big cultural economic hub. You have the Guggenheim, you have all these different um, networks of exchange in which also you have a global market for Brazilian culture. I think about Brazilian jiu-jitsu. My son is a practitioner and he competes. Um, uh, and so when he goes, I, I, he feels like a minority. He's like, I wish I spoke Portuguese. And now he's learning one because also his cousins, but it's an advantage for him, right? To, to fully immerse himself in the culture because it even helps his practice as a jujitsu practitioner. But I think it's fascinating because again, there is a lot of Brazilian culture industries that emerge and are, are, are global. But at the same time, when you think about what's happening in Brazil still today, a lot of it is, again, due to this great inequality and the power that landowners have to control access to land and the landless labor force that basically with peasants that lack access to the political system and I hate to use those words but when I say peasant I don't mean it like in a bourgeois French way but I mean it more like peasants campesinos right they're the people who live and work off the land in the 1960s Brazil became an urban society today 20 75 percent of Brazilians live in urban areas because you can't live 
and, and compete in a global market if you just live off the land. Despite industrialization, the structure of land ownership remained almost intact, and there is an escalation of violence in the countryside, which is important for us to think about in terms of also how alliances form or political sensibilities. It happened here in the United States, um, remember, during the 2016 political era where you had individuals in the United States who felt ignored for a very long time, flyover country, as they were called, and then they started mobilizing and, and, and also fueling a paranoia that you know, immigrants were taking their jobs. And so they started scapegoating without necessarily realizing that they were being oppressed by the same type of inappropriate gross capitalism that excludes them because they lack purchasing power. And that then leads to political invisibility, right? Because if you don't have um, voting power or, or, or are unable to make decisions or, or shape the future of your community through the voting system, then your issues, your priorities, your challenges are not my priority if I need your vote and I know that you're not going to give it to me, right? So you start seeing how a lot of this poverty also gets politicized and that leads to lack of basic health care, uh, 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 corrupt uh, and, and corroding sewage system, um, which leads to not everyone having access to clean running water. There is a geography of hunger, um, and this highlights the class and regional inequities where hunger is a major problem. And so children enter the public school system, but there's a staggering dropout rate, and they must move into the workforce, but there's not a lot of opportunities. So you have a poor, hungry, uneducated population that is going to become the future labor force and leaders. And so there is a growth of the favelas in the cities. And these shanty towns have experienced growing social tensions and violence becoming the focal point also of the drug trade, which was fascinating that actually in Brazil during lockdowns, because you had Jair Bolsonaro, the previous president, who was an anti-vaxxer, and he was very much saying that everything was fine in Brazil. He had a rhetoric very similar to Trump in the United States. In fact, they were allies. It was the drug cartels that were actually maintaining the public health protocols in these shanty towns to ensure that there was less contagion and they were able to manage the pandemic because the government was failing them, the state. So despite the fact that you have this illicit drug trade that is running rampant in the favelas, I cannot ignore the fact that in the absence of the state, people relied on informal networks and, and, and systems that actually offered them protection during this crisis. And so drug lords control the drug trade in the main favelas, often actually employing children. And this is where it becomes really problematic because you have children and teenagers that then grow up to become adults in the drug trade. So you have this perpetuation that happens. And this is why you have 45 million children who live in Brazil in extreme poverty. But again, despite the, the structural violence of the everyday as um, 
when it has been called, you have community still resisting and still putting their feelings, their dreams, uh, and their sadness on the record. And so I want to talk a little bit about Afro-Brazilian music. Brazilian music represents Brazil's culture and racial mixing. And so Brazilian musical styles are dynamic and diverse. So you have samba, which is the musical form created and sustained by the black and mulatto working classes in Rio de Janeiro. And it dates back to early 20th century. And samba, the word, comes from the Angolan semba that refers to the umbigada which is the navel touching, which is an invitation to dance. It was originally a part of many African circle dances. Origins of the samba are actually really unknown, but some historians believe it was brought to Rio de Janeiro from Bahia by slaves and free blacks in the late 19th century. But it was in Rio de Janeiro that samba developed. So it became a voice for those who have been silenced by their socioeconomic status and a source of self-affirmation in society. In many ways, we see this happen throughout the Americas, hip hop in the Bronx, um, but also reggaeton throughout the Americas has a similar way of also becoming self-affirming. Today, samba is at the core of Brazilian national identity, and it is tied to another popular festivity which is happening currently, which is Carnival. Now, Bahia is the most black part of Brazil. The majority of the population, as Caetano Veloso, one of Brazil's most famous voices says, he notes that the majority of the population is black and we have the traditional African religion still. We could say untouched. Although they have all these fusions with Catholic mix and liturgy, they still have the whole ritual structures intact. So it gives to Bahia a very different atmosphere and cultural environment. Afros and Afoches are groups uh, played during Bahia's carnival. I've seen them when they start practicing in these uh, neighborhoods in Rio, these schools for the dances. And it's quite impressive because a lot of the uh, costume is also made by hand. So in the most truest sense of the definition, we're talking couture, right? Like hours and hours spent on these costumes. And so you have uh, more informal groups also born within the lower classes from grassroots movements like Olodum. They mix their cultural celebrations with Afro-religious elements. And so uh, you have Fijos, the Gandhi, which means Gandhi's sons. And I want to say something that I have come to appreciate, maybe it's because I've been at a lot of jiu-jitsu matches, is Brazilian rap. This multicultural nature of hip-hop that allowed the cultural to be appropriated and used in other nations, right? So... It, it, it resonates, let's say, with the African diaspora in France, right? From a shared experience of oppression. But today, Brazilian composers and singers mix traditional Brazilian music with new urban musical genres, especially rap. And so Brazilian rap mainly criticizes racism and the poor conditions of Afro-Brazilians. And it was born in the poor areas of the periphery of the city of Sao Paulo. 
but soon spread to other cities such as Rio de Janeiro. And so rap actually adapted to the landscape of the city, fusing the late Carioca lifestyle with controversial themes such as urban violence, social and political critique, and yes, drugs. And so again, the way culture creates meaning and, and gives people sometimes a mirror or a window, it's important for us to see with the filters of that history and understanding Brazil in that context. So in another timeline, my plan as an undergraduate was actually to devote my life to theater, but not as an actress, but rather as a playwright. And a lot of it was because of Augusto Boal. So who's Augusto Boal? So he was uh, a Brazilian theater director, writer, and politician. And I think really embodying this academic activist artist orientation that a lot of voices that emerge in the Americas takes on, right? So he um, passed away in 2009, born in 1931, he founded the Theater of the Oppressed. And so he basically was subject to arrest. He was jailed and tortured before finally being exiled to Argentina. But he emerges as a voice because theater, as he believed, is used to change something about society, about culture, about politics, but also about yourself. And so Boal's methods encourage an actual dialogue with the audience, as opposed to simple one-sided conversations or monologues. And it's made from local news or political legislation, so it becomes very dynamic and, and, and specific also. And so he um, has this invisible theater which could spring up anywhere and where those witnessing wouldn't be clued in what was performance. So again, think about this blurring of fact and fiction that emerges when you're unsure if you're a spectator, are you actually actively participating? So he has three techniques that he put with the invisible theater. So it's a technique of rehearsing a scene with actions that the protagonist would like to try to use in real life. So it's almost like you practice the type of change you want to see. And by seeing it, you are imagining. So if you could see it, you could believe it, you could do it, right? So this is done in a place where those events could really happen and in front of an audience who, unaware that they are an audience, accordingly act as if the improvised scene was real. Thus, the improvised scene becomes reality. Fiction penetrates reality. What the protagonist had rehearsed as a plan, a blueprint, now becomes an act. And so image theater consists of creating short scenes, no longer than a minute or two, with a strong image that the entire audience can easily understand, identify, and apply to their own lives. Images can be realistic, allegorical, surrealistic, symbolic or metaphorical. The only thing that matters is that it is true, that you believe it, that it is felt as true by the protagonist. Images then tell the story in a condensed outline form using pictures with very little or no talking. The audience is pulled in immediately because they know exactly what is being said. Movement, music, and ensemble are used to heighten the impact. And so this then leads to forum theater, which is a type of theatrical game where a problem is shown in an unresolved form. The audience is invited to suggest, suggest and enact solutions. 
this scenario is then repeated, allowing the audience to offer alternative solutions. The game is a contest between the audience and actors trying to bring the play or oppression to a different end. The result is a pooling of knowledge, tactics, and experiences as the audience participates in enacting solutions to break the cycle of oppression that they are also rehearsing for life. And so the thing is with Boal is that he wants to activate the imagination so you can actually imagine your own liberation. And I think that to me is one of the most powerful tools because oppression is used to chip away at your self-esteem, your sense of health and self. But when you can see yourself in a different light, then you are able to actually come out of your oppression because you're able to see it. And so for me, he's called the revolutionary theater artist and cultural activist because although he used theater as a means to bring about liberation in the minds of individuals and honestly, colonialism impacted most our psyche because this is the hardest part to decolonize, right? And so he saw the struggle of the working class against the class of society of Brazil as one that also had universals attached to it. If you are oppressed, you can see yourself in that oppression. And so he brought theater to the masses as a means of giving people a voice and an empowering experience. And when he was arrested, it was because in the 1960s, he was too subversive. These ideas of liberation when you have a military regime are dangerous. And so the military regime condemned Boal's unconventional theater and teaching methods and saw him as a threat. And he was kidnapped in 1971, arrested, tortured, and then sent into exile in Argentina. And so he was in Argentina, then he went to Paris. And during his exile, Boal developed his ideas and practice, which now we know as theater of the oppressed. But his influences are also important to know. Freire, Paolo Freire, the radical educationalist and activist for social justice who writes Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and also Brecht, who's a theater writer practitioner and acknowledgement of the politics of life in theater, his ideas to break the fourth wall and inspire people to go out and change the world are really the ideas of theater of the oppressed. And so in an um, interview with Boal, he said the following, we are unique as animals in that we have knowledge of ourselves as we observe ourselves in actions. We create a space memory imagination conscious and unconscious. We seek to create the oppressed dialogue, but in many societies, all we get is monologues. And so all theater, according to Boal, is necessarily political because all the activities of men are political and theater is just one of them. Forum is about politics, but not party politics, but politics that brings out social relationships and also the possibility of unity, of there not being differences, of confronting hierarchies and inequality. And he writes in Games for Actors and Non-Actors the following, theater is a form of knowledge. It should and can also be a means of transforming society. Theater can help us build our future rather than just waiting for it. And so forum, legislative, invisible, newspaper, theater, image, rainbow of desire, games for improvisation, 
these are all important parts of his work for breaking the ice or getting to know each other, bringing awareness of the body and making it expressive. And the improvisation that goes along is an essential part of the work too, because also it allows people to um, feel that they can just be who they are because the theater transforms. And so you're not a passive recipient or audience member, but rather you are receiving the experience into an active dialogue. And that allows the audience of the theater piece to react and express their views on the subject of the play. But they also raise their concerns. They express their opinions. They propose solutions that are then incorporated into the play. And so again, if you think about the actors that perform some of the scenes again, and then you hear audience members that are shouting stop at any point. And the person who says stop offers a different approach. At this point, the actors will improvise the scene again with the ideas uh, suggested. And the audience member joins the actors and takes on the role of the character themselves. So again, it's very dynamic and it's filled with interventions and a blurring of actor spectator spectator which is what he says and he often calls this form of theater a theatrical debate his audience are not spectators but spectators right all people are natural communicators so dialogue is a common and important dynamic between people and so he talks about dynamization which permits the actor and spectator to take control of political and social problems and to probe and inquire whilst trying to invent new ways to confront oppressions. And he says that humans are capable of seeing themselves in the act of seeing or thinking of their emotions, of being moved by their thoughts. And in conclusion, he says, they can see themselves here and imagine themselves there. They can see themselves today and imagine themselves tomorrow. And maybe the reason that this really resonated with me is because as immigrants, we're always in this imagination. Think about it. In many ways, life could feel theatrical. And so how do you also take on life as a therapeutic? So let's talk about pedagogy, the oppressed, and Freddy's philosophy. So he lived from 1921 to 1997, the Brazilian educationalist, um, and he left a significant mark on thinking about progressive practices. His Pedagogy of the Oppressed is currently one of the most quoted educational texts, especially in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. So think about it, in these colonized or formerly colonized spaces, his work resonates on a deep level. He was able to draw upon and weave together a number of strands of thinking about educational practice and liberation. And his perception of the world is important because he saw it as this battle between dehumanizing and humanizing forces because it was filled with violence. There's a struggle of the oppressed and the historical vocation of the oppressed is to be part of humanized condition. And so he talks about liberation, affirmation, denouncing alienation. His struggle for liberation is collective and not individualistic. So you can start seeing where it becomes incompatible with, let's say, traditional business practices, which are about being exceptional and to think about yourself as an individual and not as part of a community. And so there is a need for liberation for the oppressed and oppressor, where to be is to be like, and to be like is to be like the oppressor. 
So liberation of both is the ontological vocation. And so in terms of pedagogy, perception is not enough. The dialectical process of action and reflection is required. So developing a new consciousness for both oppressor and oppressed, for them to have a solidarity is an imperative. And so the concrete solution should be objectively verifiable, needing solution, as opposed to subjectivism. It's not about interpretation. Think about it. Certain things are objectively wrong. Racism, sexism, discrimination is wrong, right? Even though we have laws that may legalize it. And, and think about post 9-11 world, right? Where if you see something, you say something. Well, what do you see is someone who looks suspicious. What does suspicious look like? You see where I'm going with this. And so he wanted basically to have a realistic thinking. And so he has humanist and liberating pedagogy um, kind of in conversation with each other. First, the oppressed unveil the world of oppression and through the proxies commit themselves to transformation. And in the second stage, according to Freddy, this stage ceases to belong to the oppressed, but is taken up by all men and women for permanent liberation. So he notes three levels of consciousness, the naive consciousness, the critical consciousness, and the transformation of consciousness. And the human condition is about the oppressed and oppressor, the dehumanized condition, and he notes a culture of silence. So he starts critiquing the educational system because these individuals or these beliefs don't emerge in a vacuum. So in the Banki system of education, which he critiques and which I myself am very much against, is where the teacher teaches and the students are taught. The teacher knows everything and the students know nothing. The teacher thinks and the students are thought about. The teacher talks and the students listen meekly. The teacher disciplines and the students are disciplined. The teacher chooses and enforces his choice and the students comply. The teachers act and the students have the illusion of acting through the action of the teacher. The teacher chooses the program content and the students who were not consulted adapt to it. The teacher confuses the authority of knowledge with his or her own professional authority, which she and he sets in opposition to the freedom of the students. The teacher is the subject of the learning process, while the pupils are mere objects. And so he says there are two types of education. There's that type of education, which is banking, and it's filled with myths, a resistance for dialogue, treating students as objects of teaching becomes the norm, the domesticization of the students, and an immobilization and fixating. And this is a problem-posing education that one needs because it needs to be about non-myths. Then you start seeing why something like critical race theory becomes so dangerous, right? It's about promoting dialogue. Students are critical thinkers, ontological vocation to become human, and there is a historical and liberating approach to education because if it's not for liberation, what are we doing? It should be about dialogue of words, of works, of action, a dialogue of disposition, a profound love for the world, humility, intense faith in humanity, mutual trust, a sense of hope, discerning, and critical thinking. There should be an equal balance to dialectic of reflection and action reflection. Dialogue is an existential necessity, and we are creative beings, and so banking system of education denies that. And so both of us need to think of each epoch 
as characterized by a complex of ideas, concepts, hopes, doubts, values, and challenges in this interaction with their opposite, striving towards fulfillment. These themes are never isolated. In fact, they are independent, disconnected, or static. They are always interacting. They are always in conversation. And so there is a cultural action for transformation. That is the essential call to action. It's a call to action to revolution, which will come about with a good theory, with leadership. Because cultural action for transformation is necessary because of conquest, divide and rule, the manipulation, and the cultural invasion that has been instilled into the social fabric through our banking educational system. And that doesn't lead to cooperation or unity for liberation or cultural synthesis. In fact, we need dialogue. Five aspects of Paulo Freire's work have a particular significance for our purposes here. First, his emphasis on dialogue has struck a very long, strong chord with those concerned with popular and informal education. Given that informal education is a dialogical or conversational rather than a curricula form, that is hardly surprising. However, Freire was able to take the discussion on several steps with his insistence that dialogue involves respect. It should not involve one person acting on another person, but rather people working with each other. Too much education, Freddie argues, involves banking, the educator making deposits in the educatee. And second, Paulo Freire was concerned with proxies, which is action that is informed and linked to certain values. So dialogue wasn't just about deepening and understanding, but was about making a difference in the world. Dialogue in itself is a cooperative activity involving respect. The process is important and can be seen as enhancing community and building social capital and to leading us to act in ways that make for justice and human flourishing. They thrive when there is this type of ethos. Informal and popular educators have had a long-standing orientation to action, so the emphasis on changing the world was welcome. But there was a string in the tail. Paulo Freire argued for informed action and as such provide a useful counterbalance to those who want to diminish theory. But he talks about conscientización. So Freire's attention to naming the world has been of great significance to those educators who have traditionally worked with those who do not have a voice and who are oppressed. The idea of building a pedagogy of the oppressed or pedagogy of hope and how this may be carried forward has formed a significant impetus to work. An important element of this has his concern with conscientization, developing consciousness, but consciousness that is understood to have the power to transform reality. And so this leads us to think about experience. Paulo Freire's insistence on situating educational activity in the lived of participants the lives that they live, their social world, has opened up a series of possibilities for the way informal educators can approach practice. His concern to look for words that have the possibility of generating new ways of naming and acting in the world when working with people around legacies is a good example of this. And this leads to transcendence. The divide between teachers and learners can be transcended. In part, this is to occur as learners develop their consciousness, but mainly it comes through the class suicide or transcendence experience of the teacher. And again, these are words that are used by Freire. The educator for liberation has to die as the unilateral educator of the educatees in order to be born again as the educator, educatee, or the educatees and educators. 
An educator is a person who has to live in the deep significant sacrifice. There is an inherent problem to this, right? There's the question of violence that emerges or consciousness, the rise of dominating bureaucracy that kills the efforts that we could have towards this justice and education. There's also the question of political action. But as Freddy put to us, we can talk it through. We can imagine the change that we want to become. And so this is why Freddy actually influenced a lot of my anthropological practice and in the classroom too because I don't see myself as having students I have co-learners I have collaborators and together we strive towards liberation <laughs>